Welcome to Slashing Through the Corner. Hi there everyone and welcome to another instalment of Slashing Through the Cordon, the Kaima Cricket Podcast. And already in previous episodes of this podcast, I've brought you tales of matches that, for one reason or another, somehow fall into this disputed category, where the match does not come to its natural conclusion and instead falls into the basket of match drawn or match incomplete what has been more likely with matches involving Kaima teams back prior to the 1900s, a match where the result is claimed as both sides as a victory. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are involved in other clubs who are not Kaima, who would suggest that this is just a trait of the Kaima Cricket Club, always arguing the other side of the argument and always disagreeing with the way everything is run. That would not necessarily be an untrue suggestion, but it would be a misconstrued one. So yes, over those years before organised cricket became more regulated, it does seem that the many versions of the Kaima Cricket Club happened to participate in their fair share of matches that didn't always have a conclusion without some sort of animosity. And today I'm going to relate the tale of another of those matches, where not only is the story a familiar one, it also has a familiar face as a part of the way it was drawn out, one that regular listeners of this podcast may in fact recall. Oh, just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. The Clyde Cricket Club made its way down from Western Sydney to Kiama on Good Friday, 11th of April, 1879. They were to play the Broughton Creek Cricket Club on that day at Church Point, followed by the Kiama United Club on Saturday at the same ground before taking on the Shell Harbour Undaunted Club at Shell Harbour on the Monday. As it turned out, the Broughton Creek players were unable to make it to play on the Friday due to the inclement weather, and so the players would have enjoyed the hospitality of their hosts at the Kaima Hotel, before locking horns with the Kaima United team on the Saturday. The game was set to commence at 10am sharp that Saturday, but for reasons that are unexplained in any publication that I can find, even though the visitors were ready to commence at the starting time, the locals did not appear for over an hour later, and the match did not actually commence until 11.45am. So already a lot of time had been lost, given the match was to be concluded on the same day. It was, however, arranged to pull stumps at a quarter to six that evening, and if the match was incomplete at that time, the result would be decided on the first innings. So, no disaster could possibly happen, from that being set in stone prior to the match commencing, could it? Even if the match was starting almost two hours late. Clyde took their turn at the crease first and were soon summarily dismissed for just 27 runs, which no doubt would have made everyone watching on the day wonder if there would be any need for a time for stumps at all. In the Kymer Independent and Shoalhaven Advertiser report on the match, it was stated, and I quote, the feeling of the Kaima men being very good, that of Mrs Spinks being particularly so, end quote. Well, that's all and good, and given James Spinks had taken four catches in the innings, it is a reasonable assumption he did well. He also managed two wickets with the ball, as well as being involved in the run-out of the opening batsman for Clyde. But what of Kaima's other opening bowler, who gets no mention at all in the report? 
In that innings, Thornton took seven wickets for just seven runs. To that point in time in Kaima cricket history, they were the sixth best figures in an innings by a Kaima cricketer. Perhaps it was no big deal to the team, the newspaper, or the individual. For two weeks earlier, against the Illawarra Cricket Club, Thornton had taken nine for 17 in innings, which even then was only the third best figures for Kaima to that time. However, nothing in the report suggested how well he had bowled on this day, but I guess we can assume it had been a pretty handy spell. Kaima's reply did not begin well with Charles McCaffrey being bowled first ball of the innings. The Kaima team managed to draw level to Clyde's first innings while only having lost that first wicket. But from this point, the experienced Sydney team dragged themselves back into the match. Four batsmen for Kaima, skipper George James with 16, Thornton himself with 12, James Spinks with 15, and McGrain with 10, managed to reach double figures without going on to a big score and the locals were eventually dismissed for 66 in their first innings, a lead of 39. Following the lunch interval, Clyde returned for their second hit of the day, and managed to do a much better job of their second innings than they had of their first, although opening bat Rook was run out for the second time of the match. With Thornton unable to back up his first innings effort, it was Captain James who was able to make the inroads to the innings, finishing with five wickets. Clyde was dismissed for 91 in their second innings, a lead of 52. But as the day was coming to an end, it appeared that there would be no chance for the match being completed and that Kaima would claim the match on the first innings. But throughout the history of Kaima cricket, that's not how the club likes things to go. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. It was a quarter past five when the Kaima team repaired to the crease to begin their second innings, and there seemed little chance of an outright decision in their favour, given the deficit of 52 runs that faced them. However, with the agreed stumps time certainly now in their favour, the Kaima team could be confident in batting out the half an hour that lay in front of them. Error. The Kaima United batting, in a tradition that a century later would be dubbed the Kaima Collapse, completely fell apart under the terrific bowling of McDonald and Wright, who tore through the batting at will. No, no player made double figures, with six being the highest score. Though, the report in the Kymer Independent did err on the side of caution by reporting, and I quote, the bad light no doubt having something to do with it, end quote. Before anyone knew what was going on, Kymer United had been reduced to 8 for 20, and the game was in the balance. And then came the moment when the game became an argument instead of a game of cricket. At the luncheon interval, John Spinks from the Kaima United team had had to return home. As a result, he had been replaced by a man that that may be known to regular listeners of this podcast, one Alexander Gordon. Now, Gordon was no stranger to infamy when it came to the Kaima Cricket Club. He had been called for throwing in a match some 16 years earlier, which had caused the abandonment of that match within the first opening three overs. He had bowled underarm at the East Sydney team just a few years earlier and been successful, halting future Australian batsman Gregory and Bannerman. And though advancing in age, now reaching 45 years, he was still a competitor and an asset with skill and experience in any situation. 
and what situation required him more than the saving of a match that was on the verge of having defeat being snatched from the jaws of victory. With four minutes until the agreed time for stumps, Gordon walked to the crease, at which point the Clyde captain remonstrated, claiming that under the rules of cricket, a substitute player could fool for a player they had replaced, but could not bat for that player. This of course required the Kaima captain to become involved, and a discussion ensued. As reported in the Kaima Independent of the day, and I quote, It appears from the laws of cricket that a substitute is not allowed to go to the wickets. Whether the captain of the Kaima team was ignorant of the law, we do not know. End quote. The discussion went on, and whatever was behind the cap- Kaima captain's thought process in trying this on, it was eventually conceded that Gordon would not and could not bat, and that the last batsman, Harvison, would need to come out to bat. Gordon left the field, Harvison took his gear and put it on. In those days, of course, as was the case until recent years, very few players owned their own gear, and the communal kit was what they used. Thus, players had to take their protective gear off and pass it on to the next batsman to put on. In the late 1800s, it would have been unusual for more than two sets of pads and bats to be available in all kits. Harvison was kitted up and ready to go. But before he could walk onto the ground, the Kaima captain called stumps, as the time had now clicked past a quarter to six. And the game was, to his mind at least, over. Outrage! The Clyde captain, no doubt feeling as though he was being cheated out of the match, came forward and demanded a further two minutes in which to bowl at the new batsman. Otherwise, he would claim the match for his team, as, by the definition of the rules, the new batsman had not reached the crease within two minutes of the previous batsman having been dismissed. This was true, as because of the confusion over Gordon's attempt to bat, more than four minutes had passed by the time Harvison had been ready to come out. This is how it was reported in the Kymer Independent, and I quote, The teams left the field, and a good deal of talk took place between them as to the result of the match, each side claiming a victory, and the manner in which one or two of the Kymer players argued their cause was simply disgraceful and disgusting. They seemed to forget that the Sydney players were their visitors, and as such were entitled to at least some little courtesy and respect. End quote. A dinner was to have been put on that evening for the visiting team at the Steam Packet Hotel. But following this end to the match, the Kaima team refused to extend that invitation and went off by themselves instead. The Kyra Independent, at the end of that article that I've quoted from, actually printed the rules that apply in this situation so that everyone who was reading the paper on that day would know what was happening. And they go as follows. Substitute in the field. In all cases where a substitute shall be allowed, the consent of the opposite party shall also be obtained as to the person to act as substitute and the place in the field which he shall take. Uh, 
Anyone chosen as a substitute in the field afterwards going to the wickets. Any person chosen in this way ceases to be a substitute when he takes his place as a batsman. Position in the field. They could choose where the person could field. And in those days, until recently in fact, uh, that meant that they could not field, uh, could not bowl or field at long stop, wicket keeper or take point. Even better. Oh, absent players or resumption of the game. A player having gone to the wickets, his place at wickets, cannot afterwards be taken by another, a substitute only being allowed to field in his absences. Over the next two weeks, a short exchange of letters to the editor of the Kymer Independent came from both the secretary of the Clyde Cricket Club and George James, the captain and secretary of the Kymer United Cricket Club. In his letter to the editor, James expressly disagrees that the game was to commence at 10am. However, the Kymer Independent actually reports that as the starting time on its report of the match. So it seems many things were amiss on that day. And so, the match result was claimed by both teams. In those days, umpires were usually provided by both teams, and thus their impartiality in deciding a winner would have been superfluous. And with no higher authority such as a district board or the such to appeal to, both teams would have had continued to believe themselves as the victor. It must be remembered, although these matches were organised on an invitational basis for the fun and competition and just the joy of playing a game of cricket, the end results meant nothing in the higher scheme of things and so were open to this kind of contrived and unfortunate ending. So there we have yet another match in the history of the Kaima Cricket Club that ended in some dispute. And I can be honest with you, in all of the matches I've discovered where there was some sort of dispute over what occurred in a match and where these matches have eventually been abandoned mid-match or claimed by a team with little to fall back on, it seems to me that the perpetrators almost always seem to be the Kaima team. And of course, these matches all occurred pretty much before 1900. So as we can see from 1900 onwards, once cricket began to get organised into unions or into competitions, there were other boards that people could appeal to to make sure that the right result was made. Anyway, thanks for indulging me again with another episode from the distant past of cricket in the Kaima district. And I hope you return again for more tales in the next episode of Slashing Through the Cordon, the Kaima Cricket Podcast. And that stumps, gentlemen. <laughs>